All right, good morning, everybody. This morning we'll be in Psalms 31 and 32, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, 31 and 32. And we'll pray and we'll get started. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the time we get to spend together in your word. It's your word that sustains us. It's what gives us the food we need for our soul, for our spirit. It's what helps us to grow and to exercise our spiritual muscles. Lord, that's what we desire. We want that. Um, So Lord, help us to retain and and, uh, hide in our hearts all that you have for us. Your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide um, and that we'd grow. That's, That's all we want is to grow closer to you and to grow into maturity. In Jesus' name, amen. In Psalm 31, David is in trouble. And we believe this was written about the time that um, Absalom had chased him out of Jerusalem. Absalom was his son who was trying to usurp David's authority and place himself on the throne. Um, it was to be Solomon is the one that was God would choose to be the next king, but uh, Absalom didn't want to let God choose. Absalom was going to make it happen, which is the way of the world. It really is. The way of the world and the way politics works, it's who you, whose palms you press and whose hands you grease. Or, in this case, basically a coup. <laughs> That's what he's trying to do, is just to take over the throne. Not interested in God's opinion on the matter, not interested in God's anointing, just wanted to take the power for himself. And so this comes from a father, this Psalm 31 comes from a father who's not only being uh, challenged in his authority as king of Israel, but also is, it's by his own son. And so there's an extra depth, another layer of betrayal there. And um, that's a hard thing to, to take. And so that's why I believe it's so hard. David never had a problem with enemies. Someone comes against him, you know, he went against them and he, and he won every time because the, he was on God's side. But when it's your own son, it, was, uh, it would be very difficult for that to, because you don't want to hurt him. And that was the whole point. Please don't hurt Absalom. That was one of the things he requested of his mighty men. Don't hurt Absalom, you know. And Absalom with his wavy hair ends up getting hung upside by a tree as he's riding on his horse. He gets caught up in the tree and... One of his guys doesn't listen to David's orders and and spears David's son. And it just breaks David's heart. So that's where we're coming from in this psalm. It's a very, um, it's a heartfelt cry to God that David has here, not for normal adversity. And not that adversity is normal, but there are, you know, there's some pretty status quo things that can come into our lives that we cry out to God for. This is not one of them. This is different. Verse 1. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. In this first section, these first five verses, we hear something very familiar, I believe. It's Luke 23, 46, into your hand I commit your spirit. David quotes that at the cross, or Jesus quotes that at the cross. Committing your spirit to the Lord is a, it's beyond, I believe, just agreeing 
David is, I'm committing my entire future to you, Lord. I think that's important. Christians, when we confess our sin, when we acknowledge Jesus as our Savior, um, there is a, a second component to that. And it's for him to be Lord of our lives, to be our King, to be our God. And when we say that, a lot of Christians will come across in this way, I agree that you're God. There's no arguing that. Um, but the Lordship is something different. The Lordship is, I have committed my life to you. I, I'm not going to falter. Uh, whether my family comes or not, whether alongside me or not, whether my, uh, my friends understand me, no matter what happens, I've committed my way to you, Lord. Your way for me, God, whatever your plans are for me, they are now my way. That is the way I will go. I won't be distracted by the shiny objects alongside the road, you know, basically. Committing your soul and your spirit to the Lord, trusting in him for your salvation, um, allowing him at the, it's a beautiful place of peace when you come to that in your heart. When you're no longer fighting and struggling and trying to manipulate your way out of or in, through, and navigate this world, and you commit your way to the Lord, and you let and allow God to let and allow things happen to you, knowing that you're right at his feet, following him at his footsteps, you know, right in the dust of his, of his path that he's creating for you, there's a peace that's there. Whatever comes to my way, this is the will of the Lord. Whatever I go through, this is the will of the Lord, and he will carry me through. And David understands that. I, I do cry out to you, he says. I, I do hope you save me speedily. I, I'm completely resting in the fact that you're my refuge. Now, this is a spiritual refuge. God doesn't offer us physical locations, obviously, castles to jump into in time of trouble with a bunch of weaponry all ready for us. We actually rest in a spiritual, in some ways, invisible protection that God has for us. And that's unnerving for those who trust in chariots, for those who trust in the things of the world. Lots of things we can put into those categories. It could be your bank account. It could be your retirement. It can be your family even. Um, it could be the things that are tangible in your life. I, I have a good, solid car. It runs well. You know, I have a good retirement. It's, it's really looking good, and, 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 I'm, and I'm well within my means. I'm, I'm living within my means. These are physical protections that we place in our life, and nothing wrong with that. A lot of wisdom in that. But that's not what David's talking about, because those all can vanish away. Your car can get stolen. You know, this great car is now longer, no longer in your driveway, you know, or whatever. Your bank account, well, I'm, I'm invested pretty conservatively. Pretty much no good place to put your money right now. It's really hard to find a nice place to put your money. Real estate, you should, I'm kidding. Just kidding, just kidding. That too can fail. All of it can fail. Putting your trust in the things of this world, there isn't anything that can't be taken from you. There isn't anything that can't dissipate right in front of your eyes. There's a, some of you have seen that funny video of the raccoons. They give these raccoons cotton candy and raccoons can't help themselves, but they must wash everything. And so they take their fish and they wash it. So they give these raccoons this cotton can and they wash it and they're like, oh. <laughs> and they get some more and they wash it. They can't help it. It just keeps, well, that's this world. That's all this world has to offer. 
Nothing is tangible. Nothing is something. David is saying, I commit my spirit to you. I'm committed. That's the only real, real tangible thing we have is God and our faith and our trust in him. That's the only thing that's going to stay sure. That's the only thing that will not fail. He is, he's unfailable. He is un, he's not, he's, He's so rock solid and steadfast. He, he says, I can swear by no other but myself. There's nobody better to swear by than me. There's no one bigger either. I mean, I can be trusted. David knows that. Even Jesus, his son on the cross, says, I commit my spirit to you. I'm in trouble. I need help. If you're in trouble and you need help, this is the prayer for you to offer up to God. And to not look at the chariots and the things in this world to protect you and save you. Verse 6, I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of, of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. So he moves from his desperate cry for help to a, Acknowledgement of where God has him. I've been walking in righteousness. Um, just by David declaring that verse 6, I have hated those who regard useless idols. Um, that's not self-righteousness. That's just righteousness. I just love God's ways. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. I love God's ways. And I honor God's ways. And I don't understand or approve of anybody that doesn't honor God's ways. That's not self-righteousness. That's just me loving righteousness. And we need to know that as Christians, that when I stand up for righteousness, God's righteousness in this earth, I'm not being self-righteous is what the world defines it. No, I'm on the right side of things. And I'm just David doesn't have any problem saying that out loud. I stand on God's sides. I, I hate those who regard useless idols. What a waste of time. Now, he's just bringing his life before the Lord. I've lived my life for you. I'm living my life for you. And I will live my life for you. All three, past, present, and future. And I don't like those who regard useless idols. I know they're worthless. I trust in the Lord, true and living God. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy. You haven't shut me up into the hands of my enemies. I haven't been caught. I'm worried about getting caught. I'm worried about what my enemies might do to me. I'm praying about these things, but I also know that I'm not there. That's a hard place to be. Um, oftentimes, our giants, our foes, our enemies, or whatever they're coming against us, or the, the peril that we can see on the horizon, maybe, a lot of that's just smoke. It's a smoke mountain. It looks impossible. It looks crazy. I don't know how in the world, and all of a sudden, poof, you pass through it, and you're like, oh, what was I worried about? And it's almost as if David is getting somewhat of an epiphany here. I'm worried. My son, he's going to... Wait a minute. <laughs> you anointed me to be king. You're the one that told me that my son Solomon is going to be the next king. Wait a minute. You're the one that sent all those mighty men to me out in the field when I wasn't even looking for mighty men. There they were. He begins to realize, so you're with me. You've set me on a really wide place, not a narrow place. I'm not on a, a perilous edge. I'm not walking a tightrope in this life. I'm on a really wide platform here, you know, your platform, God. And it begins to build up a little encouragement, I believe, understanding his condition, um, that he's okay. 
Um, verse 9. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief, yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails me or fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbors, and I and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten like a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side. While they take counsel together against me, they scheme to take away my life. David hears all that. He sees all that. He senses all that. Sometimes those things can be vain imaginations, and we have to be cautious about that, that we're not just thinking what other people are thinking. That can be a dangerous, slippery slope, and that can be a weapon of Satan all on its own. You know, no, I've got nothing against you. I thought for sure you did. That one time when you looked at me funny, I don't know what you're talking about, you know. Well, I'm sure of it. I've been thinking about it ever since then. That was three years ago to this day, and I still can't. Uh, okay, maybe you should have talked to me about it and I would have let you know, nope, you know, I was feeling sick that day or whatever, you know. We can be concerned about those things and there's nothing there. We bring them up on vain imaginations, we call them. They're just imaginations of our own heart. That's not what he's talking about here, though. These are things that are known to David. He he sees it. Um. This is a grief and this is a concern because those that are plotting against him are his own relatives. Normally, you can deal with enemies that are plotting against you. You don't really care. You know, God get them. But when it's your own relatives, it's what do you do with that? I, my strength is failing me. It's a, it's a kick in the gut that you didn't expect, you know. A trusted brother or friend or loved one that you thought, well, they're on your team no matter what, thick or thin, and all of a sudden, well, there it is. There's the kick. What is this? Where does this come from? And it's, it's killing him inside is basically what he's saying. He says, my neighbors and everything, I mean, he's left town, and it's like, and he, he literally out of sight, out of mind, verse 12. I am forgotten like a dead man, out of mind. I, it's like as soon as I left town, they were all about this new guy, Absalom. Well, don't you remember that's my son? And don't you remember me, David? And don't you remember? Nope. Maybe that's another thing that kicks him in the gut. Nobody remembers, you know? Oh, Goliath? Well, that's old news. We haven't seen a Goliath around here in decades, you know? We're looking for new. We're looking for more. We're looking for whatever Absalom has to offer. And it's like, well, you don't have to kill me to do it. (laughs) Just ask God. Just talk to God. You don't have to slander somebody or, you know, run somebody through the mud just because you're tired of the old and want something new. Just ask God. That's always been the prayer of the person chosen by God, whether that was Moses or David. Is look, if, if God wants me on the throne, who can take me off of it? But if God doesn't want me on the throne, who can keep me on it? It's God's. Of course, we've already discussed this. Absalom's not concerned with God's heart. Absalom is self-serving. The self-service that we can fall into is detrimental to our spiritual health we begin to think what we need instead of asking our Father what He wants to give us or what we need. 
The children of Israel ran into that over and over again in the wilderness. What you need is to follow my pillar of fire, my smoke, and eat what I give you, the manna. Thank you for the manna. It's so wonderful we don't have to hunt or do anything, and you're taking care of us every day, but we loathe this worthless food, is what they ended up saying. And we want quail, we want meat, we want leeks, and we want onions, and we want melons, and we want to go back to Egypt, we want to go back to the world where the, where the really tasty, savory food was. Yeah, tasty, savory food with a whip on your back. You forget that part, you know. The manna doesn't look so bad after you get beat down a few times. And they forgot that. The nation of Israel has had it so good under David's authority that they don't realize what they have anymore. And so they're looking for Absalom. He's going to take us to the next level. And Isaiah 54, 17, and this is important for all of us, no matter what's going on, David isn't trying to do go toe-to-toe with these people. He's going toe-to-God. He goes right to the Lord. And Isaiah, the prophet, says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. That's a great promise for all of us. It's a wonderful thing to hold on to. You know, you think about weapons and you begin to think about worldly weapons, but the first thing that Isaiah goes to is every tongue. He's not talking about spears and bows and arrows and daggers in your back or whatever while you're sleeping or poison even. He's saying, no, I know it's the tongue. It's the tongue. That's the thing that rises against you in judgment, but don't worry. Your heritage and the heritage of all those who trust in the Lord is that it's righteousness from me. I've got you. That's a promise to David, and he, he needs to remember that, and hopefully he does. In verse 14, but as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Now, in one breath, he says, you know, my time is in your hands. Take me, leave me, whatever. In the next breath, it's, but if you're asking me, deliver me. You know, I think that's fair. We ask for people to be healed all the time, and we follow up with, but your will be done. But our will is that they be healed. I don't know if they will be or not, but that's our will. We'll leave the rest up to you, and that's all David's saying. I'm placing my times in your hands, but I'm going to fight. I'm going to ask for help. And if you don't help, then you don't help. You think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. They wouldn't bow down. They wouldn't do what Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to do. And so he makes his furnace really hot. And these Jewish refugees, not refugees, <laughs> prisoners. And he says, you're not going to bow down. I'm, I'm going to throw you into this furnace. He goes, throw us in the furnace. Our God is the true and living God. That's who we're going to worship. He may, he may save us. These guys said, he may save us. But if he doesn't, we'd rather die in there with him than be out here serving you. That's the, that's the gist of it anyway. So David says, I'd, I'd like to be delivered, but my times are in your hands. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. Do not let me be ashamed, O Lord, for I have called upon you. Let the wicked be ashamed. Let them be silent in the grave. Let the lying lips be put to silence, which speak insolent things proudly and contemptuously against the righteous. David is asking God to take care of his reputation. Would you watch out for me? They're saying things about me that aren't true, or that they can't prove, or that they suspect, or whatever it is. I, I pray that you'd shut their mouths. Psalm eighty-six, seventeen, about 50 psalms away from today. 
Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. The psalmist there desires God to bring them to shame. He doesn't want to do it. He just wants their words to come to nothing. Oh, this, you know, David, he's, he's this, that, or the other thing. And then a blessing comes upon David. And they're like, oh, but God loves him. Oh, I guess he does. And it puts them to shame. Titus, Paul writes to this young pastor, Titus, chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. He encourages this young man. Likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. They may not like you, but don't give them any fuel. Don't give them any reason. Don't give them any evidence that you are exactly what they say you are. We just pray that it would make them a liar. Our behavior and the way we conduct ourselves as Christians can cause all those that are slandering you behind your back to be put to shame. That doesn't match up with their reputation. That doesn't match up with the person I know. That doesn't line up. Well, I'm telling you, that's who they are. That's not who they are in my experience. And God will protect your reputation. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 16. And the only reason I'm giving you so many cross-references is I want you to know it's permeated through the Bible that God has your reputation in his hand. He exalts the lowly. He uses the foolish things of this world. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. That's what you do. That's what we do. And always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope which is in you or that is in you. With meekness, that's power under control, and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you, not if, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. That's three different places. He says the same thing in God's word. That's how we know the Holy Spirit's the author. Don't worry about your reputation. You conduct yourself like a believer, someone who's truly committed, like David says to me, and I'll take care of the rest. They will say things bad about you. They will defame you. People just do. We don't know why they do it. I guess it makes them bigger, taller, justifies, whatever it is that goes on in their heart. But God says, I will take care of it. You live your life with your eyes fixed on me, and I will take care of your reputation. And he does. So he finishes up with this. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you which you have prepared for those who trust in you in the presence of the sons of men. You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. It's as if everybody's talking about David. Let's go get David. Let's find David. Hey, has anybody seen David? You know, we can't even make these things take place because we don't even know where he is. God just hides him. I've seen that in other scriptures. It's been interesting to me. Some of the ways that God will get enemies off your tail, you know, he can shut their mouths. In some places, they just absolutely die. I mean, we have scripture for that. Other times, he sends them a worse enemy to distract them, and you're no longer the issue. They're worried about themselves and this other enemy, so their focus is on this other thing. And you're just, and that's kind of what I see here happening is David's like, I'm hidden. It's like they're all worried about, you know, Absalom's not worried about his throne being taken away from him. He's no longer running after me, you know. A couple times God does that. Big army comes up against Israel, and 
And then he has some other army attack their homeland, so they leave the battlefield to go, you know, to go protect their own homeland. And the people that prayed are the ones that are standing there saying, where'd they all go? They fled. They took off. Nice. That was easy. That's all David's saying. He's saying, you can just hide me if you wanted to. That's a great thing. Verse 21, blessed be the Lord, for he has shown me his marvelous kindness in a strong city. For I said in my haste, when I was being hasty, David says, when I wasn't thinking it through, when I hadn't prayed about it, that's the idea here. I am cut off from before your eyes, accusing God, basically. David says, I remember when I was a little, you know, worried. And I said, where are you, God? You can't see me anymore. I'm cut off. Nevertheless, you heard the voice of my supplications when I cried out to you. I wasn't cut off at all. You heard me the whole time. Felt like it. I felt alone. I couldn't see. It felt dark. But that's not the case. That was what I was seeing, but not the truth. Oh, love the Lord, all you saints, for the Lord preserves the faithful and fully repays the proud person. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart, all you who hope in the Lord. This is one of those songs where he starts off with, oh, God, what am I going to do? And he ends up with, ah, the Lord is so good at the end of it. Our witness and testimony, which is all we're reading there, verses 21, 22, 23, and 24, David is just testifying of what God's done for him. We get kind of worked up about what it means to be, uh, to have a, a testimony before the Lord or to witness for God. They're very simple things to do. They're not complicated. You don't need a book on it. You really don't. I mean, maybe if you want to read a book on witnessing and how to have a good testimony, that's fine. But it's very simple. All you do is you live your life as a witness. I am a living witness of what God can do with somebody. I am a living testimony of what God can do. I don't need to know this or know that. You can. There's nothing wrong with that. But what God has called us to do is to let the world know this is what God has done with me. I don't know what he can do with you, but I know that he can do the same thing with you that he's done with me. And all I can do is testify to what he's done. That's all David's doing. He says, bless the Lord. I want you guys to all bless the Lord. I want you. He has shown marvelous kindness in the strong city. He's been there for me. Just love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord uh, preserves the faithful. He repays the uh, proud person to be of good courage and strength. That's all he's doing. He's just proclaiming the goodness of the Lord. His testimony is true. His witness is fulfilled. Everything God's called him to do, he's doing right here. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Not you will go witness in Jerusalem. You're just going to be witnesses. When they came out of the upper room, all filled with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, they, they witnessed. That was it. What is this? I'm showing my power in people. I'm showing my power placed upon people. And everybody asked them, what's happening? Well, let me testify to you what's happening. The Holy Spirit's filled us. And what you're hearing us glorifying God in all your languages, that's what God prophesied about. It's just happening. You're, you're witnessing it. I'm a living testimony. In 1 John 5, 10 through 11, he who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe, God has made him a liar because he has not believed the testimony that God has given his Son. And this is the testimony. What's the testimony? This, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. That's the testimony. Does it get any more complicated than that? It's beautiful. It's very simple. Chapter 32, Psalm 32. Now this is the joy of forgiveness. 
David is overjoyed with his, uh, well, he's confessed his sin to the Lord and God has forgiven him. Okay, um, that's where he stands right now. Blessed is he who transgress, whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now I pause here, not for too long. I won't go much, you know, I don't want to spend a bunch of time on it. But I do want you to note that transgression, sin, and iniquity are all left there. They're all in one section. I say that because some will say, well, being forgiven of sin is one thing. Transgressions are a different thing. And iniquity is a whole nother matter. And the writer here says, no, they're all three forgiven by God instantly when you confess them to the Lord. There is no distinction for God. Whether you've sinned, whether you've transgressed, or whether you've shown iniquity, you don't need to divide those up. They may have different uh, definitions for sure, but there isn't any one less forgivable than the other. They're all easily forgiven by God. Uh, And I say easily because it's dependent upon the grace that God has. So literally says in the Bible, I was forgiven of my sin because of the grace that God pulls from, basically. He's got this pool of grace, and he's got this pool of sin he needs to forgive. And as long as there's grace, sin can be forgiven. And so he's taking his dipper out, and he's forgiven that sin. And the idea behind it is the grace is inexhaustible, so there is no sin that can't be forgiven. And when we realize that and understand that, we won't spend so much time hemming and hawing about asking for forgiveness or confessing to the Lord. When we realize there isn't like a limited resource of God's forgiveness in our life, we don't wait around. Hold on, I need a week to think about this sin and beat myself up. David's going to describe that season when he was silent, when he didn't confess, and how hard it was, how miserable it was, how it actually affected his physical health because he wouldn't just confess his sin to the Lord and be forgiven to receive it. He wanted to wait around, and God is ready to forgive God was waiting for David to just confess it. I just want you to say it out loud. I just want you to confess it in a minute. Okay, I guess we can wait. It's not necessary. It's harmful to you, but I'll wait too. David is just saying, my transgressions, my sins, and my iniquities have all been forgiven. In whose spirit there is no deceit. God is not a liar. He doesn't trick us into confessing something and then saying, ah, not that. Not that. Verse 3. When I kept silent, when I wasn't talking to God, when I wasn't asking for forgiveness, when I was covering up my sin, when I was placing sin on top of sin to cover sin, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer, Selah, which is a pause. David wants us as singers to pause for that and think about that. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. I was dry. My bones ached. God was convicting me of sin and causing me to want to confess, but I wouldn't do it and I kept it in my heart from pride or for whatever it is that's in my heart that keeps me from opening my mouth and being humble. I kept it, and it's killing me inside, you know. It affected his health. We need to get these things off our chest for a reason. We are not able to bear these things. When he says, you can't bear the load of your sin, the wages of sin is death, and I don't mean to say this in a disrespectful way, but we say those things like 
Well, it goes a lot beyond. It goes beyond our normal. It's just too heavy. We need someone stronger to carry it. It's you can't bear it. You can't sustain living in this world with the guilt of sin in your life. You can't. It's killing you inside. So many people are in this world self-medicating themselves, trying to numb the shame, the guilt, and the burden that God has placed upon their heart to confess their sin to him because he wants to forgive them. It's a, it's a we, were, we were watching, this is off, off notes. Sometimes we watch um, a Cosby show or something like that. We, despite where Cosby is now, we didn't realize that at the time when he had his show, but we were watching this show and Theo had gotten an earring. And didn't want dad to find out because it had gotten infected. This was last night's that we watched right before we went to bed. And he was doing everything. It's infected. It's sore. It needs treatment. His dad is a physician, if you don't know the story. And someone finally had to tell on him, one of the kids. And so Mr. Huxtable walks in. Dad walks into the, the thing, and he's got his headphones on because he's looking at his dad because he doesn't want his dad to see the earring that he's got, you know, and the infection and all. He said, why don't you take your headphones off? Let's talk for a bit. Okay. And he takes it off and he goes like that. He's reading a book, covering his ear lobe. And I got to thinking as I had studied for this earlier, I'm like, oh, that is us. Just get the ear treated. You're sore. It's throbbing. It's aching. But you're so scared of what dad is going to say to us. You're so scared of how he feels about you that you won't just confess. Look, I've got a hole in my ear and it's not doing well. I need you as a physician to come heal it and take care of me. Take away the soreness. Take away the problem. All I have to do is acknowledge the fact that it's here in front of you. And so the whole story is he's walking around the kid and he's turning in his chair like this so he can't see. And that's, that's our Lord. It, 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 I, I tried to hide my sin from you. I tried to keep it from you. I tried to not let you know. And God's just like, I'm going to keep this pressure up until you finally confess that you've got a hole that needs to be dealt with by me. I can't deal with this anymore. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. David puts that a lot faster. This is what happens. There's a quote here. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. And I said, here's what I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and immediately is the idea, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's over. There's no funny look from God. There was no glaring by the Lord in heaven down upon his child. There was no making him feel uncomfortable or letting him sit and wallow in his shame for a little bit longer. It was, thank you for telling me. I forgive you. Now let's go. It was that instantaneous. And that's what surprised David. That's what David is glorifying God for. That forgiveness was there the whole time. And I kept silent for no reason. And it was to my own detriment that I didn't just share what God wanted me to share with him. God says this in James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John was known as the gospel of love, and he was known as the loving apostle, the one that Jesus loved. I mean, a lot of love focused on John. And John knew this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's very simple, and yet so hard to comprehend or believe or accept or to take advantage of, to use. David understood stands this and is trying to convey that through this song to those listening and singing this. Would you just confess it and get right with me? It's so fast and it's wonderful. Verse six, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near him. You're my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. I mean, there may be a lot of trouble in my life, but I'm writing songs about all the times you got me out of all that trouble. Not just about the trouble. You know, some people like to write the songs about the trouble. You know, the world, that's all they can do is write songs about trouble. Listen to any song. Listen to any lyrics of any song, not just the song. Listen to the lyrics of these worldly songs sometimes if you're caught at high V or something or you're stuck at the gym and they're playing this worldly music. Listen to the lyrics. It's like, man, you have a horrible life. And there is no resolution at the end of these songs. Usually the resolution is, and I'm better because of it. And they kick their feet up in the air. You know, I, this is a horrible thing, but I'm stronger now. No, you're really not. You just wrote a song about a guy you said you're never going to talk to again. That means you sat down with a notepad on the bus and wrote a song for 14 hours about a guy you were never going to think of and you're glad he's gone, but you want to write a song about it, you know? No, nothing's happened. Nothing's taken place. You're still, you're still hurt, wounded. There needs to be healing. You need someone to come in and help you. God says, call upon me while I can still be called upon. Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him. While he is near, the Lord wants to help. He wants to help the world. He doesn't want to leave them in that place of self-preservation or self-awareness and growth. And I'm better now because of all these, you know, I'm a, and what they mean by that is I'm a harder person than I ever have been before. When someone's hard, heart gets hard because of trauma over and over in their lives, it's not a good thing. They may boast about it, how nobody can hurt them anymore. I'm stronger because of it now, but that's because your heart's turned to stone. And there is no way to experience love and joy and all these other things that it was intended to experience. You've just calloused over. It's not a good thing. God does want us to have the skin of a rhino, but he also wants us to have a heart of a child at the same time not be so offended all the time, not be so easily wounded by other people, but also to keep that heart tender. He's given us his heart. I've given you a new mind. I've given you a new heart, Jesus says. And it's his heart. And his heart never got hard towards people. It was always soft and tender. It's a very important thing to have as a Christian. Verse 8. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Do not be like the horse or like the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice in your righteousness for, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That verse 8 I've used many times in my life. And that's what my heart's desire is. I want to be guided by God's eye. I don't want him to have to put a bit and bridle on me to make me go this way or to make me go that way as a servant of God. Come on, J.D., turn left, turn right, you know. No, I just want to be guided. I get to teach at the horse Bible camp here coming up in June. I'm excited for that. And this is the scripture I'm going to use for it. One of the things Mariah did yesterday was she had her first barrel race on her horse, you know. And uh, it was fun to go to. We you know, never experienced anything like that. Didn't know where to park. Didn't know what to do. Didn't bring enough this, that, or the other thing. You know, just new people. We don't know what we're doing. And so I was, as I'm going to teach all these girls, you know, about the Lord at this Bible camp, I'm like, well, how do I use that with horses and all? And so Mariah's, you know, filling me in on what it means to do a barrel race where you, you really want to have the reins loose. And you want to be doing pressure with your knees. Just a little bit of pressure on their shoulders causes them to pull away from that pressure and they turn the way you want them to. Just a little bit. It's more of this. And that's why she's so sore at the end of the practice. I'm like, why are you so sore? You mean, I know it's sore riding, but she goes, no, no, you got to press. You got to push. You got to do all this. But her hands aren't doing anything. She's holding on the horn. All these things. Like, oh, I can use that for the teaching there. There's a sermon there. You know, anybody ever get frustrated with your horse here, girls? You know? Yes, well, don't be a horse to God, you know? Be someone who can be guided by his eye and not someone who has to have a bitten bridle in your mouth and forced, you know? Someone who when God approaches with his hand out, you run to the other side of the pasture. You know how frustrating that is? Don't make him carry a bucket of feed every... I got material all day long now for this teaching. That's what I want to leave you with this morning as we close in prayer, that we be guided by his eye. David... David has his eyes fixed on the Lord, and that's how he can be guided by Jesus' eyes. Because he's looking at him. He's always looking at him. And he always knows that his master's for him. His Lord is for him. He's not going to hurt him and harm him. He can look Jesus right in the eye and trust him. And if Jesus looks over there, then that's where he goes. And that's what we want to be. Lord, we thank you for this morning in your word. We want to be guided by your eye as individuals and as a church. We want to be led. We want to know your will for our lives and we want to commit our ways to you. That your ways for us will become our ways. That we won't fight you and try to challenge you or go in a different direction, but we just let you lead us. It's the best way. Thank you for who you are. That your word in these two chapters have promised us that you're going to be our fortress. You've set us on a wide, wide platform. That our path with you is clear and that it's the right place to be. And we can't ask for anything more than that. And we thank you for it, God. Bless these folks as they go today. In Jesus' name, amen.